on King Benjamin's address. We're about to do another hour and a half. That'll make it four and a half hours. Uh, and I feel so bad for those doing uh, gospel doctrine. They're going to have like 40 minutes. Uh, and then they're going to have to roll through this. And you're going to have to sit on your hands because, you know, you've been studying this stuff so much. Uh, but uh, I want to I kind of step back just a little bit. Because if you look at the structure of this magnificent address, and, every, and the more I study it, just the deeper it, it gets. Um, I want to uh, start by, by giving you kind of a framework now based on what we've learned and what we're going to be finishing talking about today. And that is the art of covenant making. So, so step back for just a second. We, again, we have, the, we have the Nephite people and they're coming out of a long night of darkness. They're coming out of, the, out of the great Nephite dark ages. Hundreds of years with very, very little or no gospel at all. Okay? Now, this is one, we're now one generation in here where the Lord is still trying to catch them up. So that means that there's a lot of information that's having to be given... But there are lives and traditions that have to change. Think about for people that have joined the church and, and you come into the gospel and, and from day one, we can't expect a new convert to come in and pick up all the traditions and the knowledge and understanding and all of that stuff of walking into the church. It takes a generation or so for that to spiritually mature, to be handed down to their children as they're growing up. So in a sense, King Benjamin is still, build, still dealing with one generation in after the Dark Ages. So he's still bringing them forward. Uh, and you're going to see a few times why it is that there's a great question that hangs here whether they were even baptized or not. And, and we're going to bring that up a, a couple of times. Uh, the guy with the baptismal ability is still a year away. He will... He, this is Alma, and he's still out in the wilderness, and he's on his way. He's coming, but, but King Benjamin is working really hard to get these people ready. So part of what we're going to do here is we're going to talk about making covenants and how you make covenants. And this is like the path to exaltation. How do we become exalted? And there's a covenant process here. Now, as we go through this today, for those of you who have been endowed in the temple, I want you to pay particular notice that there is a pattern here and it should be very familiar to you, okay? All right, so let's talk about uh, uh, the pattern of covenant making. First of all, if you're going to take a people that don't have very much information and you're trying to build in them spiritual maturity and conversion, the process, because remember, the, the whole idea here. And it was true of Moses, and it was true of Joseph Smith, and it was true of Enoch, and it was true every prophet down through the history with the people that they're responsible for wants to take their people from fallen man to exalted man. From here we are struggling in mortality to being ready to be changed and stand in holy places. That means a transformation. We have to be altered. And in, in a sense, like if you think about the uh, olive tree in Jacob 5, we're actually being returned, we're being restored back to who we were. Okay? So the first thing you have to do is you have to 
educate. So if you would uh, transform somebody, they first of all, there has to be a period of instruction. You have to teach them what King Benjamin, remember, was talking about, the mysteries of God. Well, I find that really ironic in the fact that uh, so often when we have dismissed, we don't worry about the mysteries, you know, whether the pearly gate swings back and forth or up and down, uh, right to left or left to right. Um, we go, those are the mysteries. It's not important to your salvation. These mysteries of God we're talking about are critical to your salvation. This is how salvation works. Is that first of all you have to have be instructed in the mysteries. And the mysteries again are what? What is the mysteries of God? Unrevealed truths. Unrevealed truths. You've got to learn about heaven. So if you're going to covenant with people, you first have to teach them and teach them well. So there has to be a period of instruction. Okay? And this is Mosiah 3, and he's, getting, and he's going through all of the teaching them. And in this case, if we look at Mosiah 3, where did the instruction come from to get to King Benjamin so that he could teach his people? Where did that come from? An angel. Isn't it interesting how often angels show up with the knowledge? Especially if there's been dark ages and a restoration is needed. It's going to come from an angel to a leader who's going to give them information straight from heaven for drinking from the purest source. Okay? So here comes this period of instruction. That's what Mosiah 3 is. Let me unveil the mystery. His name will be Jesus. He will, he will uh, do many mighty miracles we talked about last week. He, he will then be crucified by people that should have known better. His mother will be Mary. Rely on him. He is the, how the atonement works. And this is all coming from the angel. And it's all coming to King Benjamin. So there's a period of instruction. Yeah. Maybe I just missed this, but where does Benjamin have all of his knowledge from if he's living in these dark ages? Right. Exactly. So where did he get it from? The angel. <laughs> oh, <he> gotcha. <laughs> in other words, the Lord didn't expect Joseph Smith to be able to just automatically know all this stuff. In fact, he's going to choose a pretty rough-hewn uh, plowboy to do this. So now he's going to teach him and educate him. I think it was a surprise, for instance, he starts early and then it's three years before he actually gets the plates. And it's another two years by the time the plates are translated. So during all this time, Joseph is being taught and educated himself so that he can teach the people. Okay, one more question. You said that Benjamin was trying to transform the people? Yes. But does... Any person do that? I, I use the wrong term. You're okay. right. He was wanting to put the people into a position where they could be transformed. Taught enough to be taught enough so that because okay. what's going to do the transforming, and that and that's actually going to lead into right where we go next. How does the transformation take place? Through the cleansing of the Holy Ghost. Through the cleansing of the Holy Ghost, the Spirit must change us. The Holy Ghost does the transformation, right? Yeah. Okay. 
You're still being taught. You're still being educated. Absolutely. Yeah, I think. In other words, we just have to allow our, give ourselves time to be seasoned, to have experiences, to, to grow, to study, to learn. You know? I just think, again, guys, you're, you're an inti- I've said this before, you're an intimidating group. If I'm going to bring a new convert in here and drop them in your midst, and we've had that, and they're looking at you and go, how am I ever going to know what you guys know? How did you know all those answers? You're, you're really intimidating to a new convert. Dang, you know a lot. And look at your kids. They can speak from the pulpit. Our kids are still playing video games and can't get out of their own way. How, how do you have the ability to do all this stuff? Well, it's seasoning. It's time. It's, it's, it's the time spent. Okay? It's the spirit that changes you over time. Now... Which then leads us into our next part. So if, if the first part of covenant making is you have to be educated, you have to be taught. By the way, I, I will say, I, I, I found it fascinating in, when, on my mission in England where we would teach people and they might be baptized within like a couple of months. And then I remember going through people sitting in the wards and stakes where I was serving and I would see these bishops and stake presidents and people and, and then you'd listen to their conversion stories and it was amazing how often these people took a year studying with the missionaries before they were actually ready uh, to be baptized that this conversion process and I think sometimes and, and I know that we get caught up in the we're in the to, the, to our missionaries, we're in the harvesting business. We're not in the planting seed, but we're just harvesting. Well, I, just, I do find it interesting that people that seem to have the deepest roots in the gospel also had the longest time to get ready. Um, and to be honest, if I were a full-time missionary today, I would, if I were teaching somebody, I would probably take months and months and months. With Brigham Young. Yeah. Brigham Young studied for, what, 18 months? Three years. Three years. Oh, wow. Because it just takes time. It takes seasoning. Okay? All right. So first of all, we educate. Now comes the next part. And that is we have to receive and accept the teaching. There has to be a willingness on our part to believe what is being taught. We have to believe it. And there has to be a point where we're saying we accept the teaching we heard. Do you accept? Yes, I do. Now, where does that happen in, in King Benjamin's address? Okay, let's look to Mosiah 4. So, let, let, let's, let's just recap here. Uh, King Benjamin is going to say, here's what the angel taught me. Here's what I'm supposed to tell you exactly. And he does. He goes through... Uh, and in fact, if we go over here to three, going back for just a second here, and he's going to say, in verse 23 of Mosiah 3, I have now spoken the words which the Lord God hath commanded me. I told you what I was supposed to tell you. Now you have been taught. Now, how do I know whether you're accepting or not? Because, And let me pull back a little bit. Sometimes... Sometimes when I'm talking to parents and they have struggling kids and they're saying, well, I told them. 
And I told them what they were supposed to do. And I explained to them. And they know because I told them. Yeah. And I said, well, think back to that conversation you were having in their bedroom. Yes. Did you do more than 80% of the talking? Yes. That was a lecture. And they didn't hear any of it. Great conversations are us doing, as parents or leaders, we're doing 20% of the talking. They're doing 80%. That's because we are listening. People don't want to be lectured to. They just don't. And, and if they're struggling with having to make some changes and they're being lectured to, we all turn into Char the adults in Charlie Brown cartoons. <laughs> He's going right by. Okay? So, King Benjamin needs to not take it for granted. I told them, so now they know the mysteries. How do they know we, that they know the mysteries? Well, if we're going to be covenanting, covenanting, verse 1, King Benjamin made an end of speaking the words which had been delivered by the angel. He cast his eyes about the multitude, and they had fallen. Oh, it's this Nephite-itis. Whenever, whenever the Nephites and Lamanites hear great truths, what do they do? They tend to fall over. <laughs> There's this, they're, 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 have you ever seen videos of fainting goats? <laughs> yes. ah! And they all go... They all fall. The, the Nephites and Lamanites of the Book of Mormon are all fainting goats. Jesus Christ is your Savior. Ah! And they just... Boom. And they do that, okay? Uh, and he cast his eyes round about the multitude, and behold, they had fallen on the earth, for the fear of the Lord had come upon them. And they viewed themselves in their own carnal state even less than the dust of the earth. Okay. Stop, 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 stop. How do we know how they viewed themselves? This is kind of important. How do we know what they were thinking? You could ask them, but how do we know? How do we know? Who's Let me back up. Who, who's writing this? Who, whose words are these? Who's writing this? Mormon. This is Mormon's abridgment. Remember, we're so used to the small plates of Nephi when we were doing. Nephi and Jacob and all that. We are now in Mosiah, and now we have now picked up after the um, the Mormons' abridgment of what happened. These are Mormons' words. How does Mormon know what they were thinking? He must have read. There, there was an account available of what the people were thinking, and he's including this in here. Okay, now so that's one part. Now here's the second part. And they all cried aloud with one voice. Do you think that... Uh, so, so, so picture what's happening here. And picture what's not happening here. Are we picturing that King Benjamin said, Here is what the angel said to me. You know, this is going to be the Savior. This is what he's going to do. And his mother will be Mary. And that now I'm done. And everybody goes... And they all fall over. And then do you think they all stand up and spontaneously as one big group say, Oh, have mercy and apply the atoning blood of Christ. 
spontaneously. How did this occur? (laughs) We don't know. (laughs) There's a couple of possibilities on this. One, there is pretty, there's a pretty good evidence, I think, if you'll think about it, that what's happening is that, and, and we'll, we'll, we're going to do this a couple of times, uh, there is going to be this, it's called call and, call and response. The king's going to say this, then they're, gonna, they're going to speak with one voice, and then he's going to say do this, they're going to speak with one voice. You ever been to a Catholic Mass? Okay, it's like that. There is a liturgy in, in place for a Catholic Mass to say, the priest says this and the audience says this. And then the priest says, do this, and then they do this. And it goes, it's a back and forth kind of thing. And some of that we do in the temple. It is call and response. Now, apparently, to some extent, the people are responding, but there's going to be... Um, in fact, let me hop over, because you're going to see the... It actually says it. Look in, for, look in Mosiah 5. And I just hopped over here. Because now here comes the second one. He's going to say, King Benjamin had thus spoken to his people. He sent among them desiring to know if they believed the words he had spoken unto them. Okay, so back to 4. What's going on here? He's taught them the things of the angels. And then they're going to respond. How are we going to know what they were thinking and what they wanted? Somehow they had recorded something together. They sent among them, I don't know if they put a little document together or something where they're going to then, this is what we believe, and now put it together, write it, maybe they signed it, I don't know. Send it back to King Benjamin. Here's what we believe. That's how Mormon got it. That's how King Benjamin knows that they've accepted it. I was just thinking of the people he said that they were kind of in a spiritual darkness and when they heard the truth it's so powerful and such a contrast to how they were living before yes that it would kind of knock you down the spirit is very strong okay hold hold on to that idea she says the spirit is very strong do we have because i believe there's one other thing that's happening here Do we have any other experiences in all of recorded religious history of a spiritual outpouring that probably just swept across people and knocked their socks off? Nauvoo, uh, with the change of Joseph to to, uh, Brigham. Where else? Kirtland, the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, the rushing mighty wind... That filled the temple, the fire, yeah, exactly. When else? Pentecost. I believe this is a Pentecost experience. It's my own belief. That you have you have a rushing might, because that's how the spirit works. And when you see a pattern and you see it in other places, you have a pretty good sense that's how God works, and that's probably what happened here. Okay? Now, this is a rushing, mighty wind. Probably that just fills them. They hear it. They accept it. And I think this is a Pentecost experience. And as a result of that, they probably recorded something together and they sent back to King Benjamin and says, we believe. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. I guess what it makes me think 
Yeah. Who comes to town and they pitch a tent and the people come. Right. And feel the spirit. And yeah, and you kind of had some sense of that because they were looking for that Pentecostal. In fact, we'll call our church that, won't we? You know, we, we want that kind of a, an experience where everybody is moved by this thing that is happening. Yeah, I keep picturing those times when I've gone into like uh, tornado recovery places or, or, or hurricane when we were down with Katrina and you saw the rushing mighty wind of the hurricane and the trees are all like, and they're all laid down together. It's almost like, wham, this thing is coming through. Um, now, but listen to what they're saying. And this is, this is why this becomes not just a fun semantical thing. This is kind of important, and it can be important to what happens to you on a Sunday. It becomes really, really real. Okay? Yeah. Oh, have mercy. Apply the atoning blood of Christ that we may receive the forgiveness of our sins, that our hearts may be purified, that we believe in Jesus Christ who created us. By the way, does that sound like a group of people that have been baptized? Doesn't look like it to me. <coughs> They're having this experience and apply the toning blood that we can have forgiveness of our sins. This sounds to me like a people preparing to be receive a water baptism. Except, look at what happens now. Our hearts may be purified. We believe in Jesus Christ who created uh, heaven and all earth. And it came to pass, verse 3, they had spoken these words, the Lord came upon them, and they were filled with joy. I love that word, filled. I think that's why Pentecostal experience kind of makes sense to me. They're filled with joy, having received a remission of their sins. Wow. Why would they receive a remission of their sins? Can the Spirit dwell in an unclean tabernacle? What happens when we are filled with the Spirit? What happens when we are completely in a place where we are filled with the Spirit? What happens? Can the Spirit dwell there in an unclean tabernacle? Yes, and notice how quick this repentance is happening. They're repenting, they believe, the Spirit is filling them, and they're going, you know... Almost immediately after, they say, we know that our sins have been cleansed. Why? Because we're feeling the Spirit so powerfully. And the Spirit can't dwell in us if we're that unclean. We're having a remission of our sins. Okay, now let me stop for a second. When was the last time you sat in a testimony meeting in a fireside? in a state conference and felt the Spirit powerfully. What's happening at that moment? And you're being filled with the Spirit. What's happening? What happens if you're kneeling in prayer and you get an answer to your prayers and you just feel filled with the Spirit? What's going on there? Or you're sitting in a temple experience. What is, what's going on? You're... I think the, the thing that sticks with me is purified. Yes, that's a good word. Purification that goes on, you think of like, and I've used this example for years, like when you 
pure vanilla. There's no yeah. anything extra. It's the pure thing. Or the extra pure olive oil. And when you yeah. look at a single, when you talk about holy, a single eye of God, because that's what holiness is if you look in the back of the church. Right. And so I, I look at that and say, well, when, when that purification, those little bits of purification comes, it really does open our minds and it really does want us to not sin anymore. And it does. And in fact, what happens to your existing sin when that happens? Well, it's like, wasn't it Elder Irene who said it becomes less attractive to you? Yeah. Well, not only that, are you, at that moment, when you're feeling the Spirit, are you sinful? No. No. You're being purified. You're being cleansed. That's the beauty of this. If we come to sacrament meeting prepared and humble and repentant for all the stupid things we've done during the week... And we sit there and you're filled with the Spirit because of somebody's testimony. Or you're sitting in gospel doctrine and you read something and your soul vibrates. What's happening? You're being cleansed. You're being remitted. You're being transformed. You're being changed. The Spirit is changing you. That's the beauty of this. We have the, and that's why we, we, we worry sometimes about our sins and our petty thing. <coughs> let, let me just say this. Uh, ladies, those of you who have been young moms and, and you're always having to clean up the house and you're having there's a chain of diapers and you have toddlers that empty every drawer in the house and, and you do that and then the dishes are dirty again and every night you've got to go through and take all that day's dirtiness and put it away and clean it up and put it back and do the laundry and and then you finally collapse into bed. And I know that's when husband wants to be romantic, but that's a story for another. Okay, you collapse into bed, and then you get up the next morning and do what? Do it the all same over thing again. Dirty diapers, <laughs> dirty dishes, dirty clothes, dirty hallways, dirty bathrooms. No you get it all clean. Then you collapse into bed. And then you get up the next day and do it again. That's called church. You're walking into a sacrament meeting, you know, dirty guilting, dirty judging, gossiping, bad stuff, stuff you shouldn't have said, all that. You get to church and what happens? The Spirit cleanses you. And then you go out, then you go home after taking the sacrament and. <coughs> You dirty the place up again. Then you come back to sacrament meeting <laughs> the next week. And, and you get cleansed again. And then you try and do better. But you still end up saying, doing stupid things. And then you go, go back to church again and get cleansed again. That's how it works. That's why I think we can say, say this. So here's the other fascinating part. Do we know of anybody else? Well, who else would you know in history that may have had a remission of their sins, they're cleansed, and they haven't even had the water baptism thing happen yet. Anybody else? Oh. There were organizing branches and churches before the formal church was even organized? Yes. Alma. Yeah. Can I give you another example? It's in, I, I put it in here, 3 Nephi 
but flee high and meet them. Oh, when the Savior said. This is the Savior speaking oh, to them after the destruction of the city. So look at what he says. Verse 20. Ye shall offer a sacrifice unto me a broken heart and contrite spirit. And whoso cometh uh, with broken heart and contrite spirit, I will baptize him. I will cleanse him how? With fire. Okay, fire. Uh, and the Holy Ghost, even as the Lamanites, because of their faith in me at the time of their conversion, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, Lamoni, his father, at the time of their conversion, they were baptized with fire and the Holy Ghost, and what? They didn't even know it. So again, what is the purpose of a water baptism? Why are we baptized by water? To show the world and and and, the, and God, it's an outward sign. I noticed in, in sacrament meeting we were we had we did some sustainings. And when they and when they're going to call a new nursery leader, and I'm sitting in there, and I raise my hand, and say, "Yep, I will do it." What have I just done? I've given you an outward sign to God and the world, an outward sign of. An inside commitment. I will support them. I will help them. That's what a sustaining is. It's an outward sign of an inner commitment. Guess what happens when we're baptized by water? It's an outward sign of an inner commitment. And as we're going to find out probably more next week, it's the entrance into the way. It's the gateway into the way, into the to entrance into the church. The cleansing Firing, remission of sins comes by fire and by the Holy Ghost. And and off time, off time, off time, off time. I believe that so many very devout converts to this church who are who are in tears, accept the gospel and feel the spirit and pray about the Book of Mormon and believe it's true, and they're anxious to have to enter in by the way. When does the remission of their sins come? Oh, it's already happened. <laughs> I think it happened when they prayed and got an answer and were fired with the Spirit. I think now they're given the gift of the Holy Ghost after a water baptism, so that can be there with them as a constant guide and companion, but the remission of sins has already occurred. In the same way that you, just the opposite. Haven't you known people that just kind of accepted the gospel really quick? Or like when I was in England, we would have the baseball baptisms. And the missionaries would go out and organize baseball teams. And everybody would come play baseball. And they'd say, okay, uh, practice is on Saturday. By the way, meet us at the swimming pool and bring white clothes. We're going to do a little something just before. Kind of the entrance into the league. And they'd, and they'd, they'd baptize them in the swimming pool. And then have them put their clothes back on. Now let's go practice. And they did a bunch of that in England years ago. How many of those had the, had the remission of sins? <laughs> like none. They didn't have the idea what they were doing. Okay? Right? That's a good question. I believe that there are some... But by the way, do I think... Do, do I think uh, Sister Teresa is, is worthy of the celestial kingdom? 
Are you kidding? Absolutely. Wow. Now, at some point down the road, the, because that, that water baptism, that entrance into the kingdom is going to need to happen for her. But man, in terms of cleanliness and remission of sins and everything, what a, what a beautiful example. Joan of Arc. Read her story. Holy cow. You get all these incredible, wonderful people who may be much cleaner than I am, but but are still still need to have that necessary ordinance at some point take place. I also think that as Mormons, we feel we are exclusionary in the world, that we are just, you know, we only have it. There's thousands of people outside in different churches. Who are wonderful, incredible, Absolutely. clean people. Yes. Yeah. Now... Um, let me go back here. Well, one more piece of this. So, so what does this mean when we are when we have these experiences where we're being transformed and we're being changed? And I kind of challenged this with you last week as we were finishing. Go back for just a second to Mosiah three. Verse nineteen, we know really well. Uh, we quote this all the time. It's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. For the natural man is an enemy to God, never has been until he enticings of the Spirit, and it becometh as what? A child. A little child. You've got to become as a child. And he's going to describe it. Submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even if you're a political candidate, even as a child does submit <laughs> to his father. Okay? Those are the ones that, re- that are being transformed. Now, he's going to, he actually, you've got to read the verse ahead of it and behind it to see what little children he's really talking about, becoming like. Look at the discussion. 18, for he judgeth and his judgment is just, and the infant that dieth in his infancy, uh, but man drinketh that nation's soul except the humble themselves and become as little children. Okay. Twenty. The time will come and the knowledge of the Savior shall spread and when the time come none shall be found blameless except it be little children. Which little children is he talking about? Those below the age of eight. Below the age of Accountability. Accountability. Right. Um, so anyone who is accessing the atonement is that little child. Becomes as clean. Exactly. Now, now let, let me take this one step farther. Get it right. <laughs> exactly. Take, let, let me take it one step farther. Can a child sin? Can a six-year-old sin? Can they commit a sin? Yes. yes. Can they go? Can they go steal something? Mm-hmm. Something? Yeah, they can sin, and they sin all the time, little monsters. <laughs> but what we're saying to them is that they are below the age of accountability. So yes, they sin, but they are not accountable for that sin. Where does that sin go, according to the Doctrine and Covenants? On the head of the parent. Oh! Alright, so that means that the Lord says, somebody has to pay for this, justice requires, that that sin that was 
has to go on the head of the parent. And we're not going to hold it to the child. Little children that become meek and submissive, do they sin? When we have become like little children, do we sin? Absolutely we do. But because we are meek and submissive and repenting and, and being fired every Sabbath by taking the sacrament and reading our scriptures and everything, are we then ultimately as we repent, truly repent, are we then accountable for that sin? No. Where does that sin go? The Savior. Okay. Now we hop over real quick. We're going to take this out of order. Guess what? Um, I go over to Mosiah 5. Look at this. And verse 7. And because of the covenant which ye have made, ye shall be called, you shall be called what? The children of Christ. Wow! His sons and daughters, for behold, this day he has spiritually begotten you, for you say your hearts are changed. Therefore you are born of him and become his sons and daughters. When you sin and you are repentant, are you accountable for that sin? No. The sin goes upon the head of who? Your parent. Who's the parent? Jesus Christ. You ever wonder why he's sometimes called the Father and the Son? You just found out. The Son because he submitted to everything that his Father required. But how is he our Father? He has spiritually begotten us. And our sins, when we repent, we are no longer accountable for them. They are answered on the head of the parent. And in this case, this is Jesus Christ. And he is now accountable to those. Does that make sense? It's, it's such a beautiful doctrine. That's why, and I'm speaking specifically to the perfectionists in the room, that beat yourself up on a regular basis because you ain't doing enough and you, and, you, and you fret over the things you did as a teenager and the things you said to your daughter when she was three and the stuff that you should have done and the times you didn't. Read your scriptures very well in the time that you didn't do your visiting teaching and your home teaching and you just kind of... Ah. We never do that. Stop it! <laughs> Stop it! When you are filled with the Spirit of... Uh, the Spirit and it fires through you, your sins are remitted. Those sins, well, and some of them may be grievous are answered upon the head of a loving parent. And we are no longer we have become as clean as children who die in infancy. That's what Mosiah is saying. We are that clean. We are that clean. How cool is that? There's a great covenant. And what he's saying is, before I'm going to make some covenants with you, I first, you're first of all going to be cleansed. In sacred circumstances like the temple, before we make covenants, are we cleansed? Yeah, that's how it works. Clean people are given covenants because they can now handle it. We don't require covenants of people that aren't yet ready. 
How are we doing? Make sense? Mm -hmm. Oh, this is a little heavy. Okay. You guys are you guys are really really capable of doing this. So, okay. How are we doing? Oh, what's around the steps? Is there five steps? We're two. <laughs> oh, we just did this one. Okay. So here comes the next one. Now, if you have been cleansed and you have been taught and you have been cleansed and your sins have been remitted, you are now in a place to make covenants. I can charge you to do things and, and now it's your job to take them and move forward. Okay? All right. So let's find out. So there some interesting charges are given. And this is in Mosiah 4 and it's 11 to 30. And now, it, now it's back on the king. He now, King Benjamin says, yep, they accept it. Do you believe it? Yes, we do. Do you sustain? Yep, I do. Okay, now here's your charge. Here's what I need you to do. Okay? I'm going to commit you to do certain things. Now, in order to understand four, let's take it, let's let's jump into the future and ruin my lesson in the future. <laughs> but it, but these, these two really fit. Okay? Now remember that all the time this is going on in Zarahemla, uh, we have uh, Alma up in the land of Nephi, who finally gets out from underneath King Noah. And then he's going to go out to the waters of Mormon. And remember, people are gathering to him out there. Remember that great story? Okay. And, and I actually figured out uh, King Benjamin will live three years after this address. Just three years. Alma will show up after four. Alma comes a year after King Benjamin dies with his people. And then he's going to show up in town and Mosiah... Benjamin's son is going to say, wow, glad you're here. Organize the church. And, and, and Alma will show up and start organizing the church. That's because Alma, I think, has some, has some particular authority that I don't think King Benjamin necessarily had. But that's why it is, I think, in all of King Benjamin's wonderful address, there is no discussion of, of, of a baptism into the way of joining a church because it has not yet been organized. Is that because they were previously baptized by water? Don't know. We don't have an idea. It almost makes sense to me that they don't, that they haven't been. They are being prepared, taught, cleansed, prepared. Here comes Alma. The prophet will show up when the people are ready. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, so... Just to give you an idea. So here is, here is Alma off in the waters of Mormon. Uh, they're probably, we think, maybe 100 miles away kind of thing. They're up in the wilderness between the, the highlands where uh, the city of, or the land of Nephi is and Zarahemla, which is in the lowlands. If you're, into the, if you're into the Mesoamerica kind of thing, my guess is, and what really has felt right to me while I was there, we're talking about the highlands of Guatemala probably, and then coming down through the wilderness, down into the Yucatan, somewhere down in there. Okay? Now, so here's Nephi, or Alma up here, and here's what he's going to say to them. He's at the waters of Mormon. 
And now as you're desirous to come into the fold of God and to be called his people and are willing to bear one another's burdens that they may be light. What do people of this group do that have been changed? That have been, what are they being charged to do? That they may be light. Yea, and are willing to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need and comfort and to stand as witnesses of God in all things, all times that you may be in. Uh, to death that you may be uh, redeemed of God and numbered with those of the first resurrection. The first couple of things he's saying is, if you really are going to come into this fold, you're going to become part of this. The first thing I need you to do is do what? What do you need to do? Help each other. Mourn with those that mourn. This is the essence of the gospel. Comfort those that stand in need of comfort. Now, if this is the desire of your heart, what of you against being baptized in the name of the Lord as a witness that you have, as a witness, is that saying, so you'll be cleansed, uh, as a witness that you have entered into a covenant that you will serve him and keep his commandments, that he may pour out his spirit more abundantly on you. Okay? If you really love people and, you, and you're filled with the Spirit, and think about it, any time that you are filled with the love of God, that think about uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Charity never faileth, right? And once, it fit, once you're filled with the Spirit, what do you want to do? Share, Share it. Love people. Um... I remember uh, in one of the uh, what, in, in one of the times that Joseph Smith told people about the first vision, and it's just such a by the way, it's such a, a silly argument that there are different versions of the first vision. There are about uh, five hardcore ones, or about nine partials, and and he's telling different people different parts of the first vision experience depending on his audience. Well, in one, of the, in one of the times that he's retelling the first vision to people, he said, after his experience in the grove, that he was filled with the love of God and the love of all people for days and days afterwards. He just had this spiritual love for people. And it just, it just natural. And being in contact with the Spirit, part of, that, part of that way that we know that we have been cleansed, is that we just have a natural desire to love people, to help them, to serve them. We just, it's what God does and we're becoming like Him and so we just do it naturally. Does that make sense? And that's what Alma's saying. If you love one another, if you have desire to, why don't you, why don't you be baptized as a sign and a covenant that you're going to enter into this brotherhood, into this sheepfold where we take care of one another. I remember real clearly, and I think I've told this story, of, of serving as a, uh, a bishop down in DeSoto. And, and uh, a job offer came to us in, uh, back in Utah that would put us close to uh, my mother who was dying of cancer. And, and we went to the, listened to the job offer. Cindy and I went to the Salt Lake Temple, prayed about it, 
And then I had to make a very painful phone call to uh, President Kurt Harshaw and say to him, uh, we're, we're moving to Utah. You need another bishop of this ward. Really, that's a, as a bishop, that's, I can't tell you what a hard call that is. That, that's painful. Um, but, he, but he says, okay, I understand. Okay, I'm going to do that, okay? Um, and, and in this process of then moving, now comes moving day, and, and the Hinkleys are moving, and like the whole ward showed up. And I remember our, our real estate agent walking in the middle of this and, and, and there's people moving stuff and there's stuff going out. And she's just walking around looking at all of this. And she's going, what is this? And I remember saying, we're Mormons. This is what we do. <laughs> <laughs> this is, we, t- we take care of our own. This is, this is what we do. And she goes, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I said, yeah. But it's not unusual. This is what we do. Okay? Well, this is what Alma is saying. If you want to do this, why don't you, be, why don't you baptize? Because uh, then they heard these words. They clapped their hands for joy. I love that. Uh, Yay! <laughs> and exclaimed, this is the desire of our hearts. This is what we want. Now, look at this discussion and then almost simultaneously look at what Benjamin is telling people back in Zarahemla. That's why I color-coded these a little bit so you can see it. King Benjamin's address. You will not have a mind to injure one another but to live peaceably. Then we're going to get all of this stuff where he's saying uh, take care of one another. You're going to make sure there's no poor among you. Aren't you all beggars? You're beggars. We all were begging for remission of sins. We beg for everything we have. Okay? Then he's going to say to them, And succor those that stand in need of succor, that you will administer of your substance unto him that standeth in need. King Benjamin's giving the same address. In Zarahemla, as Alma's giving at the waters of Mormon, it's the same one. The only difference is, Alma gets to the end of his and goes, then get baptized. And King Benjamin gets to the end of that and goes, hang on, it's coming. (laughs) It's on its way. But but the same things apply. I remember as a missionary, when we were preparing somebody for baptism, this is the sections we read to them. This was our baptismal challenge to them, actually. We'd say, uh, are you desirous to enter the fold of God? Yeah. Willing to be called as people? Yep. Willing to bear one another's burden? Yeah. They may be like, willing to mourn with those who stand and mourn? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then we go, okay, now read verse 10. So what of you against being baptized? Will you be baptized? Next month on the 5th. <laughs> this was our lead-in. Because if that's who you are... If you're feeling the Spirit, we've, ed- we've, we've educated you, you've, you've said that you agree with this, this is the desire of your heart, what have you against being baptized? And in this case, Benjamin's going, now, now you guys are feeling this, uh, you're, you're not going to have a mind to injure, you're going to succor those that stand in need of, yeah, 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 we do all that, 
and are willing to enter into a covenant with our God to do His will. Are you, when are they going to enter in? When's that covenant? It's coming. There, it's baptism. Yeah. Okay. And they're going to say, and they all cried with one voice, saying, We believe the words which thou hast spoken unto us. In other words, educate, charge them. There has to be an acceptance on their part. Yep, we believe. Sustain. Raise your hand. Whatever it's going to be, we'll sustain it. Okay, here's the charge. Yep, you believe that? Yep, we do. Okay. We agree. Here comes the next charge. And, you, and that's how the covenant process works. Okay? Uh, all right. So there's the specific charges. And then finally, the, the belief in the willingness to covenant. Are you willing to make covenants? Yeah, we are. And then the covenant is made, and, and you're going to find that there's an interesting thing that happens here. Let's look, let's look in verse 5, or chapter 5, 7. We were just kind of reading this. And now because of the covenant you have made, you'll be called, you'll be called the children of Christ, the sons and daughters, you're born of Him. Uh, verse 8. Under this head you are made free. There's no other name given whereby salvation cometh. Okay? Now, one of the things that happens with covenant making, one of the Lord's patterns, is that when we covenant, He gives us a new covenant name. It's, one, it's part of the process. This name that says, we were here, now we're here. Where in the scriptures do we find the Lord giving somebody who makes a new covenant a new covenant name? Abram to Abraham. Jacob to Israel. Saul to Paul. Okay. Peter to Cephas. Okay. All of you to... Christ. Think about the sacrament prayer. Think about the sacrament prayer. That you are willing to do what? Okay, that's right. We are willing to... There is a card over there. There is a card over there. Dr. Covenant's 20. Dr. Covenant's 21. <laughs> I want to make sure I get the word right. Witness unto thee, O God, the Eternal Father, that they are willing to take upon them the name of thy Son. Willing. Does it say that at that moment you're doing it? No, it just says that you're willing. When do you actually do that? When do you actually take upon yourself His name? Because every week in sacrament we say we're willing to do it. When does it actually happen? Well, uh, baptism we're willing also. We're now willing. We're willing that we renew our covenants and the sacrament. We're still willing. When, did, when does it happen? 
In our actions. It, it becomes our actions begin to uh, demonstrate that we're changing. But when does it happen? Partaking of the sacrament. No. I'll, I'll tell you what, what President uh, Elder Oaks said, Dallin Oaks, has a very specific time of when it happens. In the temple. That did cross my mind. He says it happens in the temple. That all, all of our preparation, all of our getting ready, being changed, being educated, being taught, repent and being made clean and everything, is all preparation for us being able to go to the temple and, and participate in sacred ordinances that enable us to demonstrate in sacred places our willingness to keep all the covenants that we've been given, demonstration that we have, and then to literally enter into His presence with His name upon us. Now, I will tell you, by the way, that there is... Uh, is, it, is it here? Have we got somewhere else? Because uh, it'll tell you... Oh, oh, oh. So here's the other question. Where does it happen? In the temple. Where is the name written? How about that one? Where is it, Wendy? In your heart. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Eleven, I would, I would that you remember also that this is the name I said I would give unto you that never would be blotted out except through transgression. Therefore, take heed you do not transgress that that name be blotted out of your hearts. And when he taught, and, and uh, the Old Testament talks about the, that the law will be written on your inner parts. And I, and I love that. It's a sense that your heart and, and core desires have been transformed and changed. You are not who you were. That you have a new heart. And it has His name on it. I think it's just a beautiful concept. I believe to Him. I belong to Him. Now by the way, the Greek, the Greek translation of I belong to Him, I have been purchased by Him, by His blood... The, the Greek translation of that really basically says that that makes us a peculiar people. That's what peculiar means. We are peculiar to Him. We belong to Him. We are owned by Him. We have taken on His yoke. Is a peculiar people. It doesn't mean weird. <laughs> peculiar people means owned, purchased, bought, belonging to Him. And His name is written in our hearts. Okay? Now, interesting thing about this name. It's also, look at the end of verse 12. You will hear and know the voice by which ye shall be called, and also the name which He shall call you. We will recognize, the, the sheep will know Him. They will recognize his voice. And the name he shall call you. For how knoweth a man the master whom he has not served? Oh, wait a minute. So how do we, what happens to us? How do we really come to know him? Remember back to the baptismal covenant. If you're transformed, what do you do? You serve 
you love, you care for, you comfort, you mourn, you do all of those kind of things. And in the process of doing all of that stuff, guess what happens? We come to know Him. It's just such a beautiful concept. Okay? Now, finally, one last thing. So after these covenants are made, look at verse 6. The very last thing, if you have been taught, you covenant, uh, you were cleansed, you covenant, he, make, he charges you with things, you agree to do it, you make more covenants, you take upon yourself His name, now you've got His name written upon your heart, now you belong to Him, and all that. And then there comes a point when ultimately at the end of all this, there is a future promise of being sealed. The very last step to covenanting is that there's going to be sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. It becomes permanent. And in fact, at the end of Mosiah 5, he's going to say that. 15. I would that you should remain steadfast and immovable, always abounding in good works, taking care of everybody, that Christ, the Lord God omnipotent, your father, your parent, may seal you his. See, we start off as, as kind of newbies, and we're struggling, and we're striving with all the promises of becoming Kings and queens. But before you can become a king or queen, what do you first become? Prince and princess. Okay, you're not there yet. You have the promise that one day you will be crowned. In ancient Israel, the way to, to suggest that somebody is, for the, the priests of Aaron, that they weren't yet kings, they were going to be a king was that they would wear a cloth bonnet. It's, it's a, just a cloth bonnet, and that's where the crown goes. It's on goes there first, but it's a, it's a sign that it's there, that one day there will be a crown there. It, it, but you're not yet, there yet. you still got to abound in good works and be changed and be altered and, and grow to that point where you can finally become a king like he is. So in a sense... Part of what's happened here, think of this beautiful parallel. This, this, part of the purpose of King Benjamin's address was that it was a coronation. A coronation and the, and the announcing of the new king, who was Mosiah, Mosiah. right? So we're combining the, the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, with the Feast of Yom Kippur, atonement, and we're doing it with a coronation. We're going to coronate King Mosiah. And we get about that much, talking about, yep, he's, our, he's your king, make sure you follow him. Okay. And he does a little bit of that in six. Yay, King Mosiah. But the rest of it is a coronation. The rest of the entire thing is a coronation. Of who? All the people. Us. That's about us. 
He is, he is setting up a coronation of every person sitting in their tents in front of the temple listening to Zerahim, listening to King Benjamin. And he's saying to them, in the same way that my son Mosiah is going to be a king over you, one day you with, his, with the name of Christ on your heart, you too will be kings and queens. It is a coronation for them. As it is for each one of us when we go through this process and we go to receive and receive this name permanently and be sealed upon us in a sacred place. That the goal is that we too will receive our coronation. That we too will become kings and everything that the Father has will be given to us as an inheritance. Does that make sense? That's why this is such a magnificent thing. It's a coronation of us. That's what this is. And it's the steps by which we are brought to that point. And that's why it's such a tragedy if we get stuck in the idea of saying, I'm just not worthy, I can't do it, I don't deserve it. Let, let me finish with one last, one last story. <coughs> The, the, this last uh, this last weekend, uh, Cindy and I made uh, preparations. We we're going to fly up to Provo uh, to go to the Provo City uh, Temple uh, open house. That'd be cool. And since my son is now working at Southwest Airlines, we got standby tickets, and this is going to be really cool. Okay. Well, as we got ready on Friday morning to go get ready for the airport, uh, we're looking at we look at the the online thing, and it says. You'll be great getting to uh, Phoenix. You're going to be great getting to Salt Lake. On Sunday morning, you'll be great getting from Salt Lake to Vegas. And there are six seats available from Vegas back to Dallas. And I don't know. Awesome. So we're going to be stranded in Vegas. I won't be able, I've got a full day on Monday. I can't afford to be stuck in Vegas. Um, and so rather than do that, we just... We, we said, uh, we've taken the day off, we'll just go. So, so we went down to uh, spend the night in Nacogdoches because uh, we wanted to go there. And then, and then what I really wanted to go was cross over to Louisiana and go to Natchitoches. Uh, beautiful little town for those of you who have been to Natchitoches. Uh, where Steel Magnolias was filmed and it's just incredibly scenic. What's his name? Uh, Na Natchitoches. Um, Sister cities, yeah, the, the, the Indian chief had two twin sons, you know, and I love the twin son thing. It sounds very Mayan, but um, we're going to send one son, wake up in the morning, the one son's going to go as far as you can till the sunset here, and the other son goes as far till the sunset sets here, and then you set up a tribe once you get there. And the one son ends up in Nacogdoches, and the other son supposedly ends up in Nacogdoches on the Cane River. Okay, awesome. Okay, so off they go. So Natchitoches is a wonderful place. And, I, and it was fun that we were sitting, we were sitting in an incredible restaurant. We're overlooking the, the lake there. And, we're, and, and Cindy got talking to a couple ladies that were sitting there. And again, think steel magnolias, think uh, fried green tomatoes. These are southern ladies, okay? And we're talking to them. And, and, and the, the one lady says, well, my friend here has been here almost all of her life. I've been here six years but we're still outsiders. Okay? And then there's a group of ladies come in and they sit over at a table by us. And the one lady goes, see, I've just been here six years. 
But them, they're cradle Natchitoches. <laughs> they're cradle Natchitoches. They grew up here. They're cradled. Okay? <laughs> and, I, and I thought about that, that phrase, they're cradled Natchitoches. Okay? Um, there is this, there's this wonderful viewpoint of saying, I am part of Natchitoches because I was rocked in a cradle here. I was born here. I was a baby here. Okay? Well, kind of in a sense, sometimes in the church, I think we get caught up between those that are converts to the church and they came lately versus those we're cradled Mormons. <laughs> you know, we're six generations cradled Mormon kind of thing. Okay? And split out. And, and it, but at the end of this, here's what King Benjamin is saying. You're all cradled kings. You're going you're gonna to be born into a new lineage with, with Jesus Christ as, as your father who's going to be the parent and is going to lead you forward. And that means you get to have everything that he has. We get to be cradled kings. And to me, that's what this, again, King Benjamin's address is a coronation of cradled kings. To make us, change us, create in us not mortal fallen man and women, but into the cradled kings and queens with all that that means. I pray that we can do that, that we can see this for what it is. And this wonderful transformation that can occur in each one of us and indeed on every Sabbath day and every time that you feel the Spirit and feel it cleanse through you and change you. And at that moment you become as clean as those five-year-old and six-year-old kids that die in infancy. I pray that we can do that. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name.